Welcome to the Renew Theology Podcast. I'm Emily. And I'm Bethany. We're two millennial women who enjoy discussing God's Word and how it applies to our lives. We believe in seeking to be rooted and established in the Word and allowing its truth to penetrate every area of our lives. Hello, welcome to another episode of Renew Theology with Bethany and Emily. Um, Today we're going to be talking about um, Messianic Fulfilled Prophecy, and we're super excited about it. We did a previous episode about historical fulfilled prophecy, and that's really exciting because it helps give the Bible a foundation for um, it being valid. I'm also really excited about the Messianic fulfilled prophecy because it proves the validity of Jesus specifically. And since Jesus himself said that the Bible was written for him, like the Old Testament was written about him, um, it's neat to go back and see the specific prophecies and how they were played out in the life of Jesus. I think it's really easy to only see Jesus in the New Testament and forget that he's actually sprinkled throughout the Old Um, I think that that's something we forget a lot of the time. So then when you come across a passage like this one where it's so clearly about Jesus and it prophesies him and, you know, like personally, before we ever looked at prophecy, the only Old Testament prophecy I knew of was in Isaiah when he will be called Prince of Peace and Lord of Lords. Like, yeah, the ones that we hear at Christmas. Yeah, exactly. And then that's just about, or I shouldn't say just, but it's about Jesus' birth. Yeah. And yeah, we only hear about it at Christmas, and that was kind of the only one that I really was aware of. So then, when we when we discuss this one, it's it's super exciting. It's it's a lot of fun to to see Jesus in other places in the Old Testament as well. Yeah, regarding regarding prophecy specifically, I just I kind of feel like I've been carrying around this treasure chest my whole life, and I've been like looking at the outside a little bit and memorizing some of the stuff on the outside. But this, I feel like I've opened up the treasure chest and realized this thing that I've been carrying around for years has all this really amazing stuff on the inside. And I now get to kind of dig in and learn about it all. So why study Messianic Fulfilled Prophecy? Well, I think you already touched on an important point that it proves the validity of Jesus. A verse that I think ties into this is Luke chapter 24, verse 44 to 45. So this is after Jesus has risen from the dead and he's appearing to his disciples. So verse 44 says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And to me, that just really speaks to, you know, it's easy to see Jesus in um, some of the prophets, I think, but... I don't know, I just never thought to look for him in the Psalms, which is what we're going to be talking about today. And if he literally told us, he talks, they talk about me in the Psalms. Now, one thing to remember with that verse is that Jesus's Bible was the writings of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Like, Mm -hmm. that's what the Old Testament is. That's what his Bible was. And so he's saying the entire Old Testament was all written to point towards me. Yeah, and I think that... This kind of prophecy can also be a great launching point for evangelism. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, somebody, especially I think for um, Jewish people who who only consider the Old Testament to be the Bible, this is a great place to find Jesus in their Bible. Yeah. Now, Paul was actually really really good about this because even though God had commissioned him as a 
apostle to the Gentiles, he tended to preach to the Jews first. And so if you look at his different sermons in Acts and then in the different ways he writes, he tends to go through the history in the Old Testament to prove his point. Now, the the second verse that you read there, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That just strikes me because I believe that that's what our experience in the recent months and years has been. Like the Lord Mm. has opened our mind and our eyes to see what the scripture actually says instead of just reading it over like normal as we have all all of our lives. And that to me is just a very personal outpouring of God's grace and mercy and love on on our lives and especially in giving us this platform to speak out of and then each other to be able to do this with. I'm I'm very grateful that he's done that. And I'm super excited to just keep learning about it and and praying that he would continue to open up our eyes and minds to what he's written. Yeah, and I think that God working in our lives and in our hearts and studying the more intellectual side of Christianity, like theology, like prophecy, those two things are not mutually exclusive. No. But rather, they you can have one without the other, but when you put them together, it's like iron sharp, sharpening iron. Like it, yeah. It's like they just both point you even more towards the Lord. Um, another point is that it, it bolsters faith for me. Is It really is exciting that Jesus has been pre-written about, not just prophesied about, but like written into the different characters of the Bible and like they lived it out and it's been written down for us. Now, specifically, we're going to be talking about um, the Psalms today in Psalm 22 and that it speaks very clearly towards Jesus's death and resurrection. And it's neat to me that it proves that because this happened a thousand years, like it was written a thousand years before Jesus was crucified, it proves that God orchestrated Jesus's death and resurrection. He he had a pre-plan, like he planned it beforehand, and he was telling us beforehand that he was going to do it. Like we said earlier, how Paul would use the Jewish scriptures, which was also the only scripture Paul had at the time, yep. to prove Jesus and who he was as the son of God. And so Paul, like at that time, there was no question that Jesus had existed. The question was who Jesus was and what his true identity was. And that's something that Paul himself did not believe, right? He actually viciously attacked the early church himself before being um, converted. So to me, it's, you know, I've often thought like, man, like what if that was me? Like what if I had been born into Jesus's time? Like, I don't know if I would have believed that he was who he said he was. How would I know that it's Jesus? But in studying some of this prophecy, I'm like, you know what? Any person who is familiar with the scriptures could have believed this. Oh, yeah. Jesus did not come out of nowhere. He came and was like, I am here. I am fulfilling scripture. Here's how. And here's also how. And oh, here, how about this? He had good reasons. Like, I I think we're going to talk a little bit about this later, but we're not called to a blind faith. No. We're called to have a reasonable faith in a reasonable God, Yeah, <laughs> you know, who does things reasonably. Yeah, that, you know? it's, it's very true. And it's very systematic. I think God was very intentional about how he laid things out from the beginning of the Bible, like beginning of the Old Testament, rather, to the very end. And it's neat to see how each different prophecy about the Messiah gave a little bit more information about what would happen. So by the time Jesus did come around, even though the prophets had been silent and God had been silent for 400 years before Jesus was born, they had all the information they needed if they truly believed in the Lord and and were truly looking for what he had promised would come. 
they would have known, like they would have been able to see as Jesus lived out his life and his ministry and his public ministry. So um, open up your Bible. We're looking at Psalm 22. Um, because the passage is pretty long, I'm going to kind of skip around a little bit and point out the, the verses that I'd like to really talk about. So the very first verse, Emily, would you want to read the first verse and the third verse for us? Sure. So this is Psalm 22, verses 1 and 3. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. So the very first part there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That should sound familiar. You should probably be able to remember that if you're familiar with the the Gospels. Because it's in the crucifixion story. Jesus says this. And it's so important that if you read in your Bible, it probably has the English translation as well as the ancient Hebrew translation. Because it's um, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani. It's going to have that and then the English translation in there. That's because it's so important. Jesus, back then, if you were reading in your Bible, they didn't have chapter numbers and verse numbers. It just kind of was what it was. So and they didn't really have titles of their Psalms either. So if I were, if we were memorizing them, you would memorize the whole thing and there'd be little key phrases that would remind you about it. So if, Emily, if you were memorizing this one. And, and you were memorizing the scripture, all I would have to do to remind you of this and be like, oh yeah, the, the my God, my God, why have you forsaken me one? And you'd be like, oh yes, I know that one. And you would kind of have the whole thing downloaded, ready to go. Right. Yeah. So this is Jesus, like his little hint. This is what's going on. Think back to this Psalm, which he does at numerous times in his ministry. I think too, like, although in Jesus' time, saying that phrase would have been like, everybody would have sort of like downloaded Psalm 22 into their heads when they heard that. Yeah. I think that nowadays we hear that phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken forsaken me? And we immediately think of the crucifixion story. Oh, that's interesting. On this side of the cross, right? Because that's the context that we're familiar with that phrase in. Yeah. And we haven't memorized Psalm 22. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So it's a very emotionally charged verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Like, this is a very powerful statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of follows the line of that most Psalms do, where either, like the ones that where you're there in trouble, oh, I'm in trouble, but you, God, are holy. Would you mm-hmm. save me? So verse three is, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Now, one thing to note about this is that it's a messianic psalm. So it was written with 1,000 years before Jesus. And in fact, ancient rabbis believed this psalm is detailing the suffering of the Messiah. And Jesus was the first person to quote this as written about the Messiah, which is interesting. So you're saying that Jewish rabbis, even though they don't believe Jesus was the Messiah, they still believe this psalm is about the Messiah to come. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So this is a detailed account. It's it's a psalm written by David, and it's a very detailed account, but it doesn't fit anything in David's life. There's nowhere where we were like, oh, yes, we can say that this is just like this in David. So now we're moving on to Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8. 
But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him since he takes pleasure in him. That's depressing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The thought of being a worm, you know what comes into my mind? No. Yes, you do. We talked about it. It's um, Khalil, the half-worm, half-caterpillar from Jonah, Jonah, the the VeggieTales movie. My mother was a caterpillar and my father was a worm. But I'm okay okay with that that now. (laughs) Um, So that's what first comes into my mind. Also, worms, ew. Um, This is a really, really neat thing because people think that this phrasing of worm is referring to something called a toloth worm or multiple spellings but a tola worm maybe so it looks more like a red bug and don't i mean this is probably gonna gross you out but it's gonna give you a good mental image think of like a a beetle kind of bug that looks like a red candy that has like the sugar coating on it so this is worm is native to israel and the surrounding areas and it was used to dye the ram skins and the priest garments in the temple red. That's the dye color. So this worm attached to the mother attaches to the tree as an adult. And then she makes a hard protective shell around her body and lays her eggs under the shell and her body. So she's like making this little nest thing, but she's using the outer shell of her body and making it super hard so nothing can get in. In fact, if you try to pull it off, you'll kill the mom. So she's effectively, like, gluing herself to the tree. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so then she lays her eggs under her shell in the body. So the babies hatch. We say babies because it's cuter. And they eat the living mother's body. Like, she's alive and they are eating her. She yeah. uses herself to nourish them. Then the mother dies, the babies leave, and the carcass bleeds this red dye out onto the tree. So that's the red dye that the priests will scrape off to use in, in dying. Three days later, the carcass has turned waxy and white, and it falls off the tree. It kind of looks like snow, and this material can be used as medicine. You might have already picked up on a couple of things how this relates to Jesus, but I would like to, um, Emily, would you read for us Isaiah 1, verses 18? Sure. It says, Come, let us discuss this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they will be like wool. I've definitely heard that verse before. Oh, yes. That's what I first thought when I heard this, which is, it's just very exciting. So here are some quick points of interest. Jesus also died on a, quote, tree. Like, a, the cross was made of wood. Yeah, I've definitely heard the cross referred to as a tree. Yep. Um, we live from his sacrifice. So Jesus is the one, he says that if I called to my father, he'd send me a a legion of angels to come and rescue me. So Jesus is the one who sacrificially put himself on the cross. And then if you look at the time he was on in the tomb, he was in the tomb for three days, which parallels the three days ish that the worm is sitting on the tree. So he was made whole and given new life. Um, so just like the worm is the after parts both of them are used for a new purpose um jesus too he's made whole and and resurrected and it's it's eternal life which parallels what he also does for us so it's just an it's not like clear like if this was the only evidence for the validity of the bible i wouldn't be like blown away but in this sense i think it's just a really neat little tidbit that the lord has put in there for us and parallels the experience of the israelites as well yeah, I don't remember if you said this or not, but I think it's really interesting, too, how 
we benefit from his sacrifice. Yeah. Right? I think that's an important point to make as well, that not only does he give himself, but we benefit and we live because of him. Yeah. Like the worms that the babies would not live if the mother did not give herself up for them. Yeah. So if we go back to the text, um, we're going to look at verse 8. So it says, He relies on the Lord, let him rescue him, let the Lord deliver him since he takes pleasure in him. So this uh, this phrase was quoted by onlookers who were at the crucifixion of Jesus. Yeah. He, he saved others, let him save himself. Yeah. I think we tend to forget that a lot of stuff in the New Testament is either a direct quote or a paraphrase of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So Psalm 22 verses 14 and 15 say, I am poured out like water and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You pour me into the dust of death. So he's not having a very good day. Nope to say the least. So um, we're going to, just like the last prophecy episode that we did, I'm just going to pull out key phrases and talk about them. So from verse 14, the phrase is, all my bones are disjointed. Now this is very, very like crucifixion because when you are cru- when a person is crucified, they are hung by their arms and the weight of their body, like their body weight of, of them on the cross, pulls their, the joints of their arms and their shoulders out. Um, mm. But their bones aren't broken. If it, that's a very clear difference between disjointed and broken. So it's like um, spread out would be another translation. Now, going forward, most of what we're going to be talking about is how this passage is a prophecy and a description of crucifixion. Now, one thing to note is that crucifixion was not actually invented until 600 years later and it wasn't perfected until like a couple hundred years before jesus was born um so that's pretty interesting as we go forward so the next verse or phrase is my heart is like wax melting within me so if you look at how jesus's last day days kind of went about he was whipped um, flogged three different times. One of the times with a Roman fragella, and that's like a bunch of different strips of leather that have a whole bunch of metal and glass weaved into them, and that would totally have ripped up his back and his body. We're we're talking pretty pretty extreme blood loss here. So when your body loses more than twenty percent of its blood, you go into something called hypovolemic shock, and one of the effects of that is that you have heart failure. So Mm. this phrase, um, all my bones are disjointed, my heart is like wax melting within me, Jesus died very probably of heart failure. So the next thing that stands out to me is my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And this reminds me of Jesus asking for water on the cross. Yeah. But he, well, he doesn't ask for water, I suppose. He just says, I'm thirsty. And uh, this would be another super common, um, I guess, side effect seems like a really weak term when you're talking yeah. about crucifixion, but <laughs> that's, effect. Yeah. yeah, that's, that's one of the things you suffer from, um, when you're being crucified. And the next phrase, you pour me into the dust of death. This is the phrase for someone who is dying or dead. Like That's what this phrase is used for. So the person who this has to be about has to be like very close to death and dying. 
So the next set of verses we're talking about is 16 through 18. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. So the first phrase here is for dogs have surrounded me. This, this, this phrase dogs is translated into despicable people. Um, a lot of the time animals are used to parallel people or groups of people in Old Testament scriptures like this. Um, so we're thinking despicable people have surrounded Jesus or the person that this is about. Um, but f- interestingly enough, another translation of this term can be friends, which to me is extremely ironic because hmm. um, it's friends have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. It's just a very interesting terminology since all the people, the Jewish people are essentially the ones who caused Jesus's death in that they asked for it. They asked Pilate for it. The people who had welcomed him, him into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday were now the ones who wanted him crucified. I think too, it's interesting that there were friends at the cross. Oh yeah. Of Jesus, right? Like there were both friends and enemies there. And to me, that's really significant. So the next one is, um, I think, pretty clear to most people, but the next phrase is, they pierced my hands and my feet. Um, and of course, the nature of crucifixion is that you're, you're nailed through the hands and feet. And, uh, and yeah, I think that's very clearly about crucifixion and Jesus. Yeah. Now, one thing that people might be a little bit iffy about is, oh, but they put the nails in people's wrists because if you put it in the hand, it'll just tear out through the flesh. Okay. But if you look at ancient literature from that time the what they called a hand was actually from like the tip of the fingers all the way until about the elbow so it's that whole area would be called a hand so you could put the nail anywhere there and still be true to the the passage right in english we have words like fingers hand wrist forearm but back then it was just hand yeah now, there's a little bit of controversy about this term because the term pierced is trans- could also be translated. They were at my hands and feet like a, like a lion or crushed in a lion's mouth. Okay, if we're really talking about how different is that? Mm-hmm. A nail going through someone's hand um, versus maybe like a lion puncturing into your flesh. Like that's not all that different. I feel and like a does, lion's tooth would be pretty similar to a nail. Yeah, and it does say like a lion. So it... This, to me, is, again, not a problem. So, a little blurb here about Roman crucifixion. Crucifixion itself was invented by the Persians 600 years after this psalm was written. So, although it was invented by the Persians, it was perfected by Rome. The Romans were probably the most well-known for using crucifixion. Yeah, they took it and ran with it. Yeah, um, and I think, too, it's easy for us to think that, like, you know, Jesus died this horrible death. Of course, he did die a horrible death, but there were literally thousands and thousands of Jews who were crucified by the Romans. And as we know, two others were crucified at at the exact same time as Jesus, synonymously with him, and that was at 9 a.m. in the morning. So... I think, you know, many people were being crucified by the Romans every day. So although Jesus's death is is horrible by today's standards. And if you say crucifixion, that's who people think of. Yeah, he he definitely died an ordinary death in his culture. Yes, I would agree with that. So um, Rome used this method of 
execution for everybody but themselves. If you were a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified. Um, So you may be familiar with the term excruciating. This is a term that was made up to refer to the pain of crucifixion. So crucifixion, the agony and the type of pain was so acute and so extreme, they literally needed a new word for it. So the next phrase that stands out to me is, I can count all my bones. And I think this is really interesting. You know, Jesus, of course, we know that he was stripped of his clothing, which we're going to come to in a minute. But, um, and of course, you're not able to lift your head easily. So you're you're looking down. And, and to me, that's very clear about Jesus being able to see the bones in his, you know, in his rib cage and his, and in his legs. And he was able to see all of the bones in his body. The next phrase is people look and stare at me. So interestingly about this specific crucifixion is that there were people there to watch. Yeah. And I would say that that was probably different than most crucifixions. I mean, I think typically when you have tons of crucifixions happening in a single day or like even hundreds happening in a week, not every crucifixion is going to have an audience. Yeah. Right. And you know what? A common thief who you don't know, you're not going to watch his crucifixion. What's special about that? There's, there was something significant about Jesus, Jesus's crucifixion where there was, there were religious leaders and also his own followers watching this. His crucifixion had an audience. Yeah. And then one thing I actually just thought of was, the Roman soldiers probably thought this was super common until there was an earthquake because one of them says, surely this man was the son of God. That's why they're so shocked. They do this all the time. This is very routine for them. Um, and then something very out of the ordinary happens to shake things up a little bit. Yeah, I think in the very last phrase in this set of verses is something we'll also recognize from the crucifixion story. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Now, to me, this is two separate things. So you you can divide garments or you can cast lots for the garments. But if you divide the garments, then how is there anything left to cast lots for them? You know what I mean? It seems to be almost a little bit redundant. And those two things seem to be mutually exclusive of each other. Yeah, which one happened? Right. Of course, until we read the passage where we find out that the soldiers divided Jesus' clothing, but then there was one piece of clothing that they they didn't want to rip it because it didn't have any seams in it. It was a nice piece of uh, clothing, so they actually decided to cast lots for that one piece of clothing, which is such a small detail, right? But again, it just adds to the validity of this prophecy. So the next set of verses is Psalm twenty-two, nineteen, verse 21. It says, But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength come quickly to help me deliver my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, this kind of comes back onto familiar territory, if you're familiar with this psalm. Sounds a little bit more like what what we know. Now, what I want to do is draw a line um, right after save me from the mouth of the lion. So you can split the whole psalm into two right here. The very From this line all the way up from the start, um, it's all about death. Um, it's all like, Lord, help me. This is what's happening. Um, or God, help me. This is, this is what's going on. This is awful. After this line, it's all about resurrection and about praising God. and um, it's, it's very, quite beautiful. So you just kind of take verse 22 and split it down the middle yep. between those two phrases. Yep. Between lion and you. So our next set of verses is Psalm 22 and 23. I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will praise you in the congregation. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. 
all you descendants of Israel, revere him. Now, this is really neat because this person is saying descendants of Jacob, descendants of Israel, honor God, praise him. And it's very specific to the Jewish people or the Hebrews. Hmm. But if we look into the next verses, which are um, 30 and 31, we're going to skip a little bit. It says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and tell a people yet to be born about his righteousness, what he has done. So the, and the phrase here I want you to know is but the third line. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. So instead of just Israel and, and the Hebrews and the Jews, we're now talking about all the families of the nations. Now, who has had a life where they die and then suddenly are being praised for being rescued and then that life and their story reaches the entire world? Is there anybody but Jesus who this can be said about? Not that I know of. No, the answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, it goes even further than that in the next set of verses. So the next phrase says, they will come and tell a people yet to be born. Hey guys, that's us. Guys, that's us. <laughs> How exciting is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's a story that is carried through many, many generations. Yeah. So what I think is a good takeaway for this is not only should the Jews praise him, but the whole world should. We should tell the whole world about this. It's The story is about a temporary forsaking, but an ultimate deliverance. And the fact that you can split it into the two of like help, death and help into praise and resurrection. Jesus rarely spoke about his death without talking about his resurrection. It was always death and resurrection, death and resurrection. And this, this psalm is the exact same way. It's, it's really neat because I, when I read this, I almost feel like I'm reading the New Testament. Like mm-hmm. it has that, that flavor mm-hmm. that the New Testament does. Yeah. And this is so encouraging to me because when we... You know, I find when I was um, younger, I used to almost be afraid to dig too deep into scripture because I was worried I was going to find something that I didn't have an answer to. And then my whole faith would be challenged and I would become an atheist. Yeah. Um, This was like a fear of mine (laughs) um, having grown up in the church. But I love that when we dig deeper into scripture, our faith is anchored, not unmoored. You know, we look for answers and we're really seeking the answers and we find them. That strengthens our faith. It doesn't um, shake it loose. The way I think about this is that you can fact check and you can challenge the Bible as much as you want. And it's all God all the way down. He will go with you all the way down and he will have the answers. Yes, it might be a little bit difficult and you might have to do some research and search, but you can go as, you can challenge it as far as you want to go and he will have them. It's so encouraging to me. It's like an onion. Yes. You know, you peel the layers. Not only do you peel the layers, but the more layers you peel, the stronger the onion is you know okay so you know mm. you know what i'm saying you know when your eyes water from an onion oh i thought you meant like like physical strength no um you know when your eyes water from an onion right and you yeah. peel back you know your eyes might not water when you peel away that first layer of skin but the more the closer to the center of the onion you get the stronger it's its smell and everything gets yeah. right in your you know and, and then you're like sobbing and you and that's kind of what i think of when i think of the bible you know the deeper we get the more god we find and it's it's just neat like i'm, I'm excited to just keep studying this because i know it's just going to keep going so because of all of this if you're taking the whole psalm together 
Jesus's crucifixion, death, and resurrection were prophesied 1,000 years before the actual event. And it's been put into the Psalms, which is a group of, of hymns and, and worship music that was sung by the, the Jews all, all this time before. And it's just so exciting to me to see that he's written in all over. And because of that, because this was a fulfilled messianic prophecy, we can trust God's promises. And not only for our own lives, but his plan for the whole world. It proves to me that Jesus's crucifixion was not just another routine crucifixion. I mean, the Romans thought it was, but it wasn't. It was a very special crucifixion. So if you've enjoyed this um, little mini two-part series on fulfilled prophecy, um, we'd really appreciate it if you'd give us a rating in um, whatever podcast platform you use to listen to us. And if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at Renew Theology. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram under that same name. And yeah, we hope to hear from you soon. Yeah. Share it with your friends, people that aren't your friends, people that are family, random people on the street. We'd love to get this this faith strengthening little bit of information out to everybody that we can. So we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.